wanted to start this morning with a little uh, story I heard about Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you know who Charles Spurgeon is. He's the prince of preachers uh, in the 1800s in London, England. Uh, just If you ever have a chance just to read his sermons, you'd just be blown away. There's nobody that preaches like that then, and there's nobody that preaches like that now. But Charles Spurgeon and another local pastor in London named Joseph Parker both had churches there in the 19th century. And on one occasion, uh, Pastor Parker commented on the poor condition of children who were admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. Now, like, orphans in London was a huge deal. Huge deal, industrial revolution. Uh, in, anyway, so, so this pastor, uh, Parker, was commenting on the poor condition of the children, but it was reported to Spurgeon that Parker had criticized the orphanage. So that Sunday, Spurgeon blasted Parker from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the London newspapers. It became the talk of the town. And so naturally, in in the age before television and and radio, everybody flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to see what he was going to say in response to Spurgeon, to hear his rebuttal. And this is, uh, Dr. Parker stood up to preach, and this is what he said. I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And that this is the Sunday they, they regularly take an offering for the orphanage. I'd like to suggest that we take a love offering here instead this morning. And the crowd was delighted. And the ushers had to empty the collection plates three times at Parker's church. Now later that week, there was a knock at his door, at Pastor Parker's door. And he opened the door and it was Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said this, you know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. I love that story. Joseph Parker took the high road, and that required humility. And Spurgeon came on the heels of that in repentance, asking for uh, forgiveness for having hastily acted on wrong information. And that also took humility. Humility is that trait most exemplified in Christ which humans hate most. I'll just say that again. I'll say it probably four or five times today, but I want to just sear it into your, your minds. Humility is that trait most exemplified in Christ which humans hate most, but it is the one that God loves most. It's the one that God loves most. And baptism is, at its core, essentially an act of public Humility. Baptism is being humble before God in public. I was thinking about finally putting pen to paper this week and writing my first book, and I, I can't decide between two titles of the book. Uh, the, the first title I'm wrestling with is Humility and How I Attained It, and the other option is The Ten Most Humble Men in the World and How I Chose the Other Nine, and I'm just not, I'm not sure which one to... Self-defeating, maybe, you think? (laughs) Reminds me of a pastor. I heard that his church voted him most humble pastor in America and his congregation presented him with a medal that said most humble pastor in America. And and then the very next week they took it away and fired him because he wore it. Um, Humility is a hard thing to come by, but it's an easy thing to lose. It's a hard thing to come by, but it's an easy thing to lose. 
And then there are some who run a race with endurance, who, who, who come by humility and cling to it. I think of the Apostle Paul who would say of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the very least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, he said, I'm the very least of all the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Humility and a passion for worshiping Jesus were the center of Paul's life, and, and there are a pair of characteristics which indicate growth in Christ. You need humility and you need a passion for Jesus and worship him, worshiping him. And the Bible's full of self-humbling, right? Men bowing before God and, and in the presence of the Lord. And, and the Bible's full of worship, which is uh, men and women giving praise to God, rising up to give praise to God. And a healthy heart is the one that bows down in humility before God and rises up in praise and adoration to God. And it's interesting to me that Paul's description of himself, the ones I quoted above, dating respectively from AD 59 and then later in, in AD 63 and then later in AD 64. And as the years pass, he goes lower. He goes more humble. He goes downward. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the saints. I'm the foremost of sinners. Paul was growing in humility as he walked with Jesus. And the call to us is to cultivate humility and a passion for praise so that we grow in grace. And I can think of no better place to begin the journey of growing in grace and humility than in the waters of baptism. So baptism is, at its core, an essential act of public humility. Let me give you a little background on the word baptism this morning. The Greek word is baptizo, and it means to wash. It literally means, translated, I wash or to immerse, right? This is what the word means. And in the ancient Greek culture that Jesus grew up in, the Greco-Roman world, it was a really prominent term if you were uh, in the dye trade, right? If you were into linens and, and cloths and you dyed those cloths red or purple or blue, that was, uh, you dipped them into that vat of dye. To immerse them into that vat of dye was to baptizo, right? They were baptized in the dye and when the cloth came out of that vat, it had a distinct new appearance, it was a different color. It was identified in a new way according to that new color. And so Christians who are baptized are immersed. Uh, we become identified with Jesus Christ and his followers in much the same way that that cloth takes on a permanent new color, right? And so we established last week, baptism doesn't save you. It's not part of your salvation. Uh, it's not something God requires of us, but it is something God desires for us. And what I want to do this morning is share with you two stories of baptism from the pages of scripture and then draw out the aspect of humility as it essentially relates to this concept of baptism. And let me preface this by, um, oh no, I had, had prizes this morning. I'm going to give you a quiz in just a minute. I have, I have prizes. I don't remember where I put them. Did I mention details are not really a strength, right? Oh well, that's okay. I'll use them for something else. Um, God deals in covenants, Contracts, commitments, those things deal with the exchange of goods and services. You know, you sign a contract. We're, we're in the process of trying to refire a house. We have to sign a contract. I hate, I hate being an adult when I have that kind of stuff. It's just so not fun. And, and those things are um, contracts, commitments, relationships, goods and services wrapped up in feelings and fondness. And all of those are easily broken. All of those are made in our name. We sign on the dotted line, right, in my name. But the covenant is something different. 
Covenant is essentially different. It's not an exchange of goods or services. Covenant is an exchange of persons. That's why when you go to a wedding and you see the, the bride and the groom standing up front and, and they're entering into covenant, they say, till death do us part. Because it's an exchange of persons. Saying, I'm giving you all of me and you're giving me all of you. And so a covenant is the highest level of commitment of bonding and belonging to one another. Covenant is the chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to one another to work towards a common goal and pledge their lives to that common goal. And every covenant in scripture has a sign. We're gonna do a little pop quiz, right? Collective groan. Uh, pop quiz. I want to see if when I name the covenant, you can tell me the sign that accompanies the covenant. Okay? Because every covenant has a sign. Adamic, the Adam, the covenant with Adam, the Adamic covenant. What, what's the sign? This is a tricky one. Because it's not really explicit in scripture. And, and that's okay if nobody wants to guess. This is really probably not a good thing to do in church, by the way. Because it's just like people like, worse fear Right, I'm gonna say the answer and it's gonna be wrong and I'm gonna look dumb in front of all these people, right? So nobody guesses, so it's okay. Uh, here's the, I, I think the Adamic covenant, the sign is the curses pronounced against mankind for their sin uh, of Adam and Eve as well as God's provision for that sin because he says one is gonna come who will crush the head of the serpent, right? Um, and, and, I, and this is just my, I think the belly button is the sign of the Edemic covenant. That's just me. Because Eve's gonna be the mother of all from that point on. I think it's the belly button. That's my, that's my personal. Everybody just, when you go to the beach this week, just look around at the belly buttons and go, man, God is good. God is good, right? What about the Noahic covenant, Noah? What's the sign of that covenant? Rainbow, okay, yes, the rainbow. He's never gonna flood the, 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 pour out his wrath by flood on the earth again like that. Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision, we won't get into that one. Um, the Mosaic covenant. Say again? Close. It's I don't think that's the sign. It's something that all the people who are part of the covenant would have or would do. I think it's Sabbath. I think the sign of the Mosaic covenant is Sabbath. Um, marriage covenant. Somebody's gonna have to say it. Cover up the kid's ears. Sex is the sign of the marriage covenant. Yeah, that's why it belongs to marriage. Belongs to marriage. That's the sign of the covenant. And then we got one more covenant. The new covenant. What's the sign of the new covenant? Yeah, what am I preaching on? It's baptism. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Baptism is the symbol that, uh, that says to the world, this thing has happened in the life of this person right? And at its core, it's, it's, a, it's an act of public humility. And so here, let me just share two stories out of the scripture to illustrate this truth. For the first one, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament in 2 Kings 5, uh, verses 1 to 14. This is Naaman, the Assyrian, and his story uh, in the middle of, of the book of Kings at the time of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And so, again, if you, if you have your paper Bible, 2 Kings 5, if you have your device, you can go to the YouVersion app and uh, follow along in my notes. If you go to events, you can find Emmaus Road. 
So the text reads like this. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and he told this to his Lord, the king. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So, so what do we know? We know Naaman's a mighty man of valor. He's a mighty warrior. This guy's like Chuck Norris, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Rambo, like all in one, right? He's just... He's bad. And, and today's, um, t- I, was, I was sharing this with somebody else earlier in the week. They're like, you mean like Dwayne the Rock Johnson? I'm like, no, like a, I, mean, I mean a real action hero. Like, like Rambo, like Chuck Norris. Um, so just had to throw that in because uh, no. Uh, little girl here, uh, the little girl in the text, if you're alarmed by that, probably 12 to 15 years old, so not like a, a four or five-year-old girl being taken, but not that that's any better you know, at 12, but um, a little bit older, old enough to know that the Lord uh, was uh, who the Lord is and who the prophet in, uh, in Samaria is, Elisha, and to, to articulate those things about him. And then, and then the problem here with the leprosy, I don't know how much you know about leprosy. It's not that common in our part of the world anymore today um, because of a particular doctor who pioneered uh, our understanding of it back in the, uh, man, as early as the 1930s and 40s, we're just really kind of coming to understand what it is and what it does. But the problem with leprosy is not the skin issues. It's the fact that you you lose your nerve uh, ability to feel, especially pain. And so the problem with leprosy is that you'll step on a rusty nail and never know that you stepped on a rusty nail. And you'll, you'll get gangrene and you'll, you'll, you'll die from it because you never knew, you never felt the pain of the thing that happened to you. That's the danger of leprosy. And so this guy this is really kind of a, uh, it's a weird situation being like a mighty warrior in this, this, the Assyrian army that he would have this. Because in one sense, it's like, well, he could get cut and keep fighting and not feel it. But in another sense, it's a really bad thing, right? So, um, this is, this is Naaman, and this little girl mentions that, um, hey, there's a guy in Samaria, there's a, there's a prophet of God who could, who could heal you, and you gotta know, Naaman's likely tried every healer and every shaman and every cult temple priest he could find to get a cure for his disease with no success, and so now, at the mention of this little girl, there's like this little glimmer of hope for him. And so, picking up the text again in verse five, he went, taking with him 10, ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. (laughs) And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider, see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. 
So, so note the assumption in the letter, right? That, that those close to God or the gods in whatever culture you're in uh, work closely with the king and the royal officials because that's all one hub. That's all one, like this is the person who governs and they're close to the deity and they have access to the deity. And uh, that was the case in Egypt. It was the case in every other pagan dynasty. But we know that Elijah before him and now Elisha were not friends with the kings of Israel. Those were not reputable people, and they actually had ministries that stood in opposition to those political rulers. And so there's this, uh, uh, this, is this assumption on the part of the king of Syria, and, and the king of, of Israel thinks this is a prelude to war. He's setting me up. I can't, he- I can't heal his best warrior. This is a setup. He wants a fight. So look at verse 8. So when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the, cure the leper. And not, are not Abana and far, far the rivers of Damascus better than all the water of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He's actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And you just see the biggest, baddest warrior in the world at the known time bobbing up and down in the Jordan River like a little rubber ducky seven times. Just, that's humiliating. And he knows it's humiliating. And he's further humiliated because Elisha didn't even bother to come out in person. He just sent some servants out and says, go tell them to do this. I don't have time to talk to that dude, right? Elisha's not worried. Elisha's not shaken. God's got this. The king of Israel is upset. But Naaman expects to be treated like he is somebody. But in truth, he's nobody. He's nobody. And to make matters worse, he, he, he ought to be coming with the posture of a beggar, having heard that's even the slightest possibility that he could be healed, of this disease. Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him personally. He just sends a text message. Naaman's pride is wounded. His servant is smart and savvy. We've come all this way. You should at least try it. And we know from the verses that follow that Naaman is humble before Elisha because God healed him. Justice is getting what you deserve. By the way, there's no such thing as social justice. It's made up. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And then there's this other category of grace. We get what we deserve or we don't get what we deserve and then God pours out this other thing that says, I'm gonna give you things that you don't deserve. It's beautiful when he does it. This act of grace changed Naaman's heart and he was humbled because baptism is at its core essentially an act of public humility. I know I'm not, I'm not making a strong case for people to want to get baptized. As I keep saying that again and again, it's like, oh, I can't wait for a public act of humility. 
This is the reality of what Jesus calls us to. Here's the other baptism story. It's the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter three, verses 13 to 17. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus' baptism marks the public proclamation of the beginning of his ministry. And in doing this, he's setting an example for all of his disciples to follow and for us. And for us, we must follow our rabbi. We must walk in his steps. So we call baptism and also the Lord's Supper sacraments. We use this word sacrament. It's the uh, Latin root sanctus, which means holy. And, um, and, and so these are moments where we remember what God has done and we, we participate in, in the, the life of Jesus in some way. We remember what he's done for us, but then there's this other thing about them, the spiritual reality here. So we say that when someone's baptized, we, we talk about our sin is dead and buried with Christ and we're raised to walk in newness of life. It's like dead, buried, raised. I think that would make a good t-shirt. Oh, wait, you can get one right over there. And I'll say it again because so many in the church today are really still confused on this issue. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. To those who would say otherwise, they are undermining the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ's finished work on the cross. Because if anybody claims salvation is necessary, even in part, for a person's salvation, then that person is necessarily implying that Christ's atoning work on the cross is in some way insufficient. You don't want to be that guy. To say that what Jesus has done is somehow not enough. There's a, there's a little part. We've got to make up the difference because what Jesus did wasn't enough to save us. We've got to do this little thing, and then we're, we fill in the gap. It's like, no, no. So baptism doesn't save us, but it does wash our soul. Baptism does break off chains and bondage. It's, it's a huge deal. If you, if you study missions at all, you'll know that, especially in Muslim countries, baptism is a huge deal. Like, well, people will profess conversion to, to, to Jesus, to Isa, but when they get baptized, it's like the no turning back point. Because you could, you could just say, yeah, I didn't really mean the whole thing about Jesus. But, but when they get baptized, that's one of the indicators that missionary, uh, missionaries look for in Muslim countries that people are genuinely following Jesus is when they go to be baptized. And they almost always don't want Western Christian missionaries to baptize them. They want Muslim converts to Christianity to be the ones to baptize them. And it's just cool to see it. Uh, if you ever had a chance to, to see it in person or to watch some videos smuggled out of those countries of people being, obviously they can't publicize that because then they would know who those people are and they would persecute them. But it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
And so the baptism of Jesus in the gospel serves as a starting point for Jesus' New Testament ministry. It's sort of an inauguration of his messianic ministry. And when he, when he says, by fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus is completing a right that identifies him with everybody else, every other human, uh, and the need to be uh, right before God, a practice that was soon to be adopted by all who follow Christ. And so that the moment of baptism is validated by these supernatural events from heaven, this God's seal of approval on that moment. You gotta know, if you're standing there seeing this happen, you're just like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And Jesus is taking this first step towards carrying out the will of God. He's being obedient, he's being humble, and now he's ready to start this earth-shattering ministry. Jesus identified with sinners in his baptism. John the Baptist hesitated at this point, right? We know he's like, I, don't, I can't do this. You, you need to be the one baptizing me. I don't need to be the one baptizing you. Uh, but Jesus clarifies that it's not for repentance of sins, it's to fulfill all righteousness when he's baptized. And so we, we see here the assurance of Jesus' sonship. The Father speaks audibly uh, about Jesus being the son with whom he's well pleased. And so it is with the follower of Jesus. You know, you've been adopted into God's family. You're a son or daughter, and God is pleased with you. Uh, it's, an, it's an anointing by the Holy Spirit at the start of the new covenant, and that's super important because later Paul will write in Romans 8, verse 9, that anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Jesus. So in this moment, the Spirit's descending on Jesus like a dove. This is the prototype. This is the moment. Um, it's a commissioning unto service. Look at the words of the Father again. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Right, this is my stamp of approval. That, that, that's that's a, uh, two places in the Old Testament where we pull the text that God, God is actually saying these things from Psalm 2. Uh, the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is Psalm 2 is about Jesus, right? And so he's pulling this, this idea from Psalm 2. And then Isaiah 42 uh, says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the, the inaugural moment. The commissioning for service and ministry foretold from of old. Those same passages dealing with the suffering and glory of the Messiah both in the Psalms and Isaiah and both, uh, for both the Son of God and those who are following him in faith, ministry and suffering are inevitable. I'm just, I just feel like it's a big pep rally today. I keep saying things like humility and suffering and public humiliation, and it's just, man, it's just got you so excited about the Christian life. I'm, I'm just preaching myself right out of a job. Um, True Christian baptism. A couple of things you need to know. Embodies God's challenge to repentance and faith. Extends to us the blessings of the new covenant. True baptism plunges us into the death and resurrection of our Lord. True baptism is a gateway to a complete revolution in our morality and our way of living. True baptism is commissioning us to the work of building the kingdom. And true baptism does something to us. By it, we enter into the name of the Trinity. Look at the, the Great Commission in Matthew 18. It says, uh, go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic of what Jesus has done for us, but there's another element to it that, uh, honestly, I can't explain. It's humbling. And it's almost as, that, as if the act of baptism just 
stamps onto your soul uh, humility in a way that nothing else does. It's just like it just stamps it right on you. So I thought about this over the course of the week. I asked myself, why would anyone not prof- prof- who, who professes Jesus not be baptized? What would be the reasons that somebody would say, yeah, I love the Lord Jesus, but I just, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not baptized. I don't want to be baptized. And I can only think of like four reasons. <clears throat> and the first one is ignorance. That's just, uh, ignoramus is the root word. It's not very... Um, it's not a very pretty word, but it's the negation of gnosis, which is knowledge. So ignorant just means you don't know. It just means I don't know. It's not a bad, we, we throw it around like people are ignorant, but that, that's not, it just means I don't have the information. I don't have that knowledge, right? So the person may be ignorant. I may not have the benefit of proper teaching, or maybe they've been taught wrong about baptism, or maybe they haven't been taught at all. But last week and then today, I, I feel like I've endeavored to take that excuse away from everybody, so you can just cross through that one, because you're not ignorant about baptism. The second reason somebody might not be baptized is pride. Some people go so long without a proper New Testament baptism that to be baptized at this stage of their life would be a public confession of long-term disobedience. And that's embarrassing. It it would be incredibly humbling to step into the baptismal waters and say, I know I should have been baptized, but I've been disobedient for years. That's embarrassing to people. And so pride gets in the way. Some are not willing to humble themselves, not willing to admit their disobedience. It's really just spiritual pride. And if that describes you this morning, can I just implore you to choose to be ashamed now in front of your your, your church and the people who love you than than to be ashamed and embarrassed at at the judgment seat of Christ? We love you. We're going to rejoice with you. Third reason some people would not be baptized is because of indifference. Just apathetic. They know. They understand it. They're not against it. They're not opposed to it. They might even believe in it, but it's just not a priority. Just never really get around to it. And then there's number four. Other people are just flat out defiant. Just flatly refuse. They rebel. Rebelling against baptism is a sign of courting and cultivating sin in your life. That person is not about to get up in front of people and publicly acknowledge their submission to the lordship of Jesus and the joy of knowing him when they're harboring sin. And it's that hypocrisy that makes them defy the command to be baptized. So you need to ask yourself the question this morning, if you've not been baptized, why not? Are you indifferent to its importance? Are you proud? Are you defiant because of sin? Are you obstinate towards God, unwilling to obey? I just want to encourage you, if you've not been baptized, after having come to faith in Jesus, you need to wrestle with these questions. Remember, every covenant has a sign. Every covenant has a sign. And baptism is a picture of what Christ has done and is doing and will do in us as his followers. This is why immersion is so important that we go under the water. That mode, that method is keeping with the picture and scriptures we identify with Jesus in his death and burial. Buried with Christ, our sins are dead and buried with Christ and then we're raised to walk in newness of life, his resurrection. It's about humility. Dwight Moody, I don't know if you know that name, another preacher in the 1800s, but here in America, great evangelist, great preacher. 
He's one of the most famous evangelists in the world in the late 1800s. People would come around from around the world to attend his Bible conferences in Massachusetts. One year, a whole big group of pastors from Europe, all over the continent, got together and came over just to come to one of Moody's uh, conferences in, in, uh, in Massachusetts. And they were given uh, rooms in the dormitory at the Bible school. And so as was the custom in Europe, and I didn't know this until I'd been to Europe a couple of times and, and then found out that um, the custom is the men put their shoes outside the door of the room and then somebody, one of the servants, cleans them. They, they polish them and clean them and then you have nice shiny shoes the next day. That's, that's the way it was in Europe. And so they just thought that was the custom. They assumed the custom and they went into the dorms and they put their shoes out in the hallway. And of course there are no servants in this American dorm. But as Dwight Moody was walking through the halls praying for the students, he noticed the shoes and he realized what had happened. And he mentioned the problem to a few of his students hoping that they would help him but none of them offered to help. And without a word... Here's what Dwight Moody did. He went and gathered up all those shoes himself and he began to clean and polish every single pair of shoes. Dwight Moody told nobody what he had done but a friend who happened upon him in the middle of the night and interrupted him in his shoe shining helped him finish the task and later would tell the story of what had happened. Um, And despite all the praise and fame he received because of God's blessing on his life, Moody was a humble man of God. He would shine shoes without being asked. I love that story because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the rightful ruler of heaven and earth, had the right to honor, praise, and worship. Yet he became our Savior. He laid all of his privileges aside and became a lowly servant and washed feet. We hear people talk about living the way Jesus lived, but what Jesus truly modeled for us was a life of humility, a life of following God and obedience, a life of willingness to give up his rights and, and, and to live a life of humbleness. We're never gonna be like Jesus unless we start with humility, humbleness, and lowliness, the traits we hate most as a culture. Humility is that trait most exemplified in Christ, which humans hate most, but is the one that God loves the most. And baptism is, at its core, essentially an act of public humility. So do not wait for God to effectually humble you. God will effectually humble every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet when they stand before him in judgment. Do not wait for that. Humble yourself. There are a dozen scripture passages I could just call off uh, James and 1 Peter 5 about humble yourself before the Lord. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is a prerequisite for salvation. The same humility leads us to the cross, leads us also to the waters of baptism. And while baptism is not necessary for salvation, it is crucial to our faith. I would even go so far this morning as to say that baptism is vital when it comes to being washed and separated from the sins of your past. And we know that the mode, the method of baptizing is not the essential part. You know, we laugh about this sometimes. I think if you're, going to, if you're not going to immerse somebody, don't sprinkle. Don't sprinkle. Man, get a super soaker. Get like five or six and do a firing squad. I mean, at least get the death part right, right? Dead to sins. Like just, just get a firing, super soaker firing squad would be more. Yeah, that'd get me fired from some churches. That'd be awesome though. 
I still think immersion, right? We want to be dead, buried, buried uh, to our sins, our past life, and raised to walk in newness of life. August 17th, coming up. We're going to have good food. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to have a potluck. We're going to swim, let the kids run and play, have fun. It's going to be a beautiful day. And then what we're going to do at uh, Winberg Park at Lake Goodwin is uh, we're going to gather there in the water and around the dock. Uh, They've got a walking platform all the way around the swimming area. It completely encompasses the beach. And so there's places for if you don't want to get wet, you're not getting baptized, you just want to watch, you can be up high, and and we're going to be down in the water there. And right now there are six people in our church body that are going to be baptized. And maybe there need to be seven or eight or ten. Maybe you're wrestling with that today. And I just want to encourage you that this is the right next step. And you're like, I just don't know. I've been, I've been walking with Jesus for a couple of years. I've never done this yet. Yeah, I know, but now's the time. You're just coming to faith in Jesus. You just started walking with Jesus in the last couple of months, couple of weeks. Now's the time. Baptism is the right next step. So I, I just pray, even as we worship here um, in these next few moments, come and find me. Let me know that's, th- that's your next step. I'd love to know that today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll continue in our worship. Jesus, I thank you for your willingness to identify with this human family, to identify with me in your humanity, in your humility as God to to condescend to become a, a man has opened the way for us, for me, with all my flaws, to see myself as part of your family. And we just see in your word this morning that baptism is that next step that identifies us. It's, it, it's just it's going into that vat of dye and being dyed red, blood red with the blood of Jesus. And, and, now, and now we've been baptized. Now we identify with you. And I just pray, Lord, that here today, if there's any heart that's wrestling with this or nervous about it or intimidated by it, that you, by your spirit, would overcome that nervousness, that embarrassment, and you'd you, you embolden those hearts. I just thank you for your grace. You love us so well. And you're a good father. I pray these things in your name. Amen.